0: Good morning. As Matt said we're going to be reading Romans 9. So if you open your bibles at page 1135 we'll start there but most of it's over the page. So page 1135 the whole of Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, and in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sands by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Thank you, Katie. That was
1: quite a reading. <laughs> so we're in Romans 9, um, page 1135. Uh, And if you're not used to following sermons in your Bible, this might be a good time to break that habit because this is um, we're going to need to uh, look at the word carefully. Have you ever wondered why we're not there? Um, I don't know whether you've ever been there. That's uh, our local synagogue. Um, I think that's Westway, but it may be Holland Road. I'm not quite sure. We've got three synagogues around us. So why aren't we there? They've got plenty of room for us. Why do we have a, an archbishop? Why don't we have a chief rabbi? It may sound an odd question, but if you think about it, we spend all our time looking at a pretty obscure book about ancient Jewish history, and we worship a Jewish man called Jesus. So why aren't we in the synagogue? And that's sort of what's behind those first five verses that Katie just read. Those first five verses of Romans 9. That's really Paul's lament that the, the mainstream Jewish leadership of his day had rejected Jesus. You see, in Jewish eyes, Jesus didn't, and he still does not, seem to fit in at all with what the Old Testament says about God and his plan for mankind. And if you read books like the Talmud, Jesus doesn't even get a mention because he does not fit into people's picture of the Old Testament. And that's why verse six starts with this sort of implied question. Has God's word failed? Has the Bible failed? And it's a good question to ask. It's a good question still to ask ourselves. Does the Bible back up really what Paul has been telling us so far in Romans? Paul's been saying that we're put right with God, (coughs) not by what we do, but by what God does. That's Paul's big message for us. And how does that fit with what we see in the Old Testament? Because for most Jewish folk, the Old Testament tells the story, doesn't it, of how God promised that a mighty nation, the state of Israel now really, would arise from their patriarchs. And that's why you've got the references here. Uh, Paul references Abraham in verse 7, doesn't he? And then Isaac in verse 10. And then we have the twins, Jacob and Esau. That's verse 13. And it's Jacob who changes his name to Israel, if you like, the founder of the state. But look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, it's a strange phrase, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What Paul's saying there is that Abraham and Isaac, these big patriarchal figures, well, they had other children. But those children didn't all turn into the nation state of Israel. Paul's big point is that it was God's choice in advance of who he would bless. So look at verse 8. Verse 8 says that Abraham and Sarah's child was born as a result of God's promise. And if you're wondering what this picture is, this is a, a very famous icon showing that moment of the three visitors telling Abraham what was going to happen. Uh, and then in the next generation, with Isaac and Rebecca, God chooses Jacob instead of Esau. They're twins, but actually Esau's the older one. But God chooses the younger one. He chooses Jacob. And in both those cases, neither of the folk involved could do anything about it. Sarah, well past bearing age. Nothing she could do to give herself a son. Jacob wasn't even born when we know that God chose him. So Paul is saying, you look at the Old Testament, and what we see there is that we don't influence God. We've got no claim on God by our deeds or by our heritage. It's a good little topic to discuss with any Muslim friends you have at the moment as we go into Ramadan, isn't it? It's a really key point to engage Muslim friends and neighbours with. We have no claim on God. We simply rely on His mercy and His promise that He saves who He chooses. And that's what verse 11 means. Verse 11, Paul refers to God's purpose in election. He has chosen who He will save, purposely elected who He will save. Now, you're all looking very somber, but that's great news. So it's better news than Brighton surviving in the premiership. To know you have been chosen, to know you've been saved by the God of the universe is extraordinary, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. I think, you know, we're all used to know what it feels like being rejected at times, don't we? Um, I do a lot of um, bidding for new work, uh, presentations in, in my job. And usually... You don't get selected. You constantly get rejected. And it's not a nice feeling. And many of us will know that sense of rejection, sometimes much more serious situations than that, where it touches on family and and close relationships. And the great news here is we don't need to fear that rejection. God has chosen us. He's promised that in Christ we are his children. It's a great thing to know. We all know that wonderful feeling of being chosen, didn't you? I used to, uh, I was always uh, the last one who was chosen uh, in the teams. You know when they pick up teams and it gets down to the last two in the the PE class or whatever? Uh, It was always such relief not to be the very last one. I was so pleased, just not to be very last. Well, those who trust in Jesus are winners, chosen by God, top of the team. And we were chosen before even the world began. That's our wonderful, wonderful truth. And that is called, in theological terms, a doctrine of predestination or doctrine of election, being chosen by God before we've done anything to deserve it. But it begs the sort of question, doesn't it? It begs the question, well, that's fine. God has chosen these people, but that means he hasn't chosen others. And that doesn't seem fair or balanced, does it? But that's what 14 deals with. Verse 14 says, is God unjust? And Paul, I think in fairly typical back fashion, bats it straight back. But what he says, he just says, not at all. Well, that's easy, isn't it? But it doesn't quite help us understand, does it? Is God unjust? Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, our salvation does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So it doesn't matter how much we want to be with God. It doesn't matter how hard we might work. The fact is God is too pure. He's too perfect. We can never achieve God's standard. So justice would actually see all of us condemned, all of us separated from God. You might say God is unjust because although we don't deserve it, He has mercy on us. But there we are. There's the hard truth sticking in that, ch- uh, that chapter. Not everyone will be saved. There are many who would say, well, that's just not true. You know, everybody will go to heaven somewhere or another. God is love. That is not the Christian message. Not everyone will be saved. Paul says very explicitly, verse 18, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens those he wants to harden. That's not easy, is it? But Paul reinforces it with another image. Look at verse 21. He's talking about the potter in verse 21. And he says, some pots are made for noble purposes and some are made for common use. So there's your noble pot on the left. That's, uh, that was apparently discovered in someone's loft, and uh, they took it to a junk shop, and they valued it at 800 quid, so they thought they'd put it up for auction. Um, they actually got 43 million pounds for it. <laughs> it's just astonishing, isn't it? Um, the thing on the other side is not so glamorous, is it? My parents used to have those under the bed. I mean, we, we, still had, we did have toilets in the house, but they... That's what you know. All the generations had some. Some made for glory, some for common use. Sorry, some for glory. That's verse 23. Let's get back away from pots. Some pots made for glory. That's verse 23, and then verse 22. But some are made for destruction. Some for glory, some for destruction. And the example that Paul uses is Pharaoh. He says Pharaoh opposed Moses, and that's in verse 17. And he says, God hardens his heart, and Pharaoh's destroyed. We go back to the same idea. Some are chosen, and some are not. And we need to be clear that this is a Bible truth. This isn't a random verse in Romans that we're coming across. It's not some sort of crackpot theory uh, of Paul's. Uh, Let's give you an example. Uh, Small Group Central, the other week, we were looking at Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus says... God loves the world so much that he sends his son that those who believe in Jesus will be saved. And then he goes on. It's a bit we sometimes don't read, but that those who reject Jesus stand condemned already. It's a bit like Brexit. We don't like talking about that. Those who trust in Jesus are saved, but those who don't are condemned already. And that's difficult to manage, isn't it? But we need to... Step back a bit and see that in the right perspective. And we need to remember the character of God. Because, of course, God is love. That is God's characteristic. He loves us. Paul may liken us to pots, but God loves his pots. He wants us to turn to Christ. In Jesus, he died for us. He took his wrath on himself, the punishment, so that we don't need to face it ourselves. But we need to face up to the fact that if we don't accept what Jesus did for us, then God's wrath is very real. And those of us who've been uh, here going through the uh, the passages in Jeremiah in the earlier series uh, will have seen that uh, preached there as well. So we have a choice. We have a choice whether we face this wrath or not. And we know that because although Paul says God hardens people's hearts against him, that process starts with you and me. So throughout scripture, you don't see God hardening someone's heart unless that person has already begun to turn from God. So Pharaoh's example here. Pharaoh with Moses, he starts off opposing God's will as it's presented to him, and then it says, God hardens his heart. So God allows us to turn against him, and he then may harden our heart against him. So there's a warning there, isn't there? We need to be really careful, I think. We need to examine ourselves and say, well, what is my attitude towards God? Am I hardening my heart towards God? There's danger there. And we need to be aware of it with our with our friends and our relations, don't we? If we're a follower of the Lord Jesus and we have friends who are hardening their heart, we need to, to warn them that there is a real danger there. Now, it's true, too. Look at verse 22. Paul goes on and he talks about objects being prepared for destruction. And that, too, uh, can look worrying. But an object that's prepared for destruction doesn't necessarily end up being destroyed. That Ming vase or whatever could easily have been thrown away as a worthless Peter tat. It might have been prepared for destruction, but it wasn't. And if you want an easy example of that that we see in Scripture, a story we all know, Jonah. Remember, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh is prepared for destruction, the Assyrian city. And Jonah is so miffed. Because actually it's not destroyed. Because Nineveh repents and turns back to God. So some people will face God's wrath. But God's nature is to love and we have the opportunity to avoid that wrath. But if all that's true... If God's chosen, if he's predetermined, if he's hardening hearts here and calling other people there and choosing people, then you might sort of think, well, what's the point? Why do I need to do anything? I'll just let God get on with it. And that's the heart of Paul's last question. That's verse 19. He says, why does God blame us? Always putting that into these readers' minds, isn't he? Why does God blame us? Who can resist his will? So if God really is in charge, why don't we just go home? Why don't we just give up, let God get on with it? Well, there are two answers to that. Paul gives a very direct answer, and then the other answer is implied, uh, and we'll just look at those. Um, so look at verse 20. Paul says, who are you to argue with God? He's sort of putting us in our place, isn't he? He's sort of saying, just, just remember who you are, and just remember how great our God is. He says, really, you're no more than a lump of clay in the potter's hands. Now, I, I did pottery at school for a while. I tried everything at school. Nothing really worked, and pottery was another one. And I you, and, uh, have you done this, and you get your lump of clay, and you, you, you stick it on the wheelie thing, and the wheel goes around like that, and the clay shoots off over there, and you get it back, and you put it on, it shoots off over there. When I was doing pottery, I don't know what shapes came out. It was bizarre. Uh, the clay didn't do what it was told. But the one thing I can say is that the clay never argued back. Because clay obviously doesn't argue with its creator. And if you read the commentaries on this, some commentators get a bit cross about this. And they say this is very poor uh, writing by Paul. Uh, It's very degrading to compare us to a lump of clay. But I think they've sort of got the point but missed the point. Exactly right. It's just a sort of degrading. It's Paul really getting that message over of the gap between us and God. It's it's vast. But the potter is in charge. And then the great news is that although we are no more than a lump of clay, we are not worthless. It's extraordinary, isn't it? God has created us, his pots, in his own image. So there may be a huge gap, but we are still in God's image. Every one of us is that lost sheep that the shepherd's gone out to bring back into the fold. So though there's this huge gap, we have a loving heavenly father who goes out, the good shepherd comes to look for us. Isn't that amazing? Remember how small we are and how great God is, and yet he still comes and looks for us. So we remember how great God is. The other thing that's perhaps not obvious, but it's there, and you see it more at the end of this chapter, is that, of course, in our day-to-day life, we still have free will. God is in charge, and we accept that. He is sovereign. But in our day-to-day life, here on earth, we have free choice. You had to decide what socks you put on this morning, unless you were mad. She goes, you don't wear socks. But you made a decision. You decide what cereal you're going to eat. You decide whether you're going to listen to me or do the crossword or whatever you're doing at the back. And yet, in some way, within that, God is sovereign. So we have God's sovereignty and we're exercising choice. And again, you're not just going to see that in Romans. If you really think of a really clear example of that. Think of the life of Christ. Think of Jesus in the Gospels. Repeatedly. Jesus says, I am going to die. And he points to the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die. And yet all the way through the Gospels, we see Jesus turning his face to Jerusalem, willingly going to the cross. Those two things are living together. God's sovereignty, his predestined, if you like, predestination, and Jesus' free choice. So we choose. We choose to accept Jesus or we don't. Verse 30 says that being right with God comes through faith. That's our exercising faith. Verse 33, quote from Isaiah, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So we have the choice whether we follow the Lord Jesus or not. And for Christians, by the way, that also means... God's sovereignty doesn't mean we just sit back, does it? We don't just sit back and let the world get on with it. We get involved. We are building the kingdom. We are telling people about the Lord Jesus. And we are involved. So we've got these two opposite truths. We have a God of mercy who saves and he's chosen us. Not on the basis that we have to earn it, but simply through free will. And we remember that we are clay in the potter's hands God is completely in control and we have our free will and that by the way is absolutely at the heart of Anglican doctrine and Catholic doctrine those two things coming together now if that confuses you I was greatly helped by um, this quote that John Stott refers to from Charles Simeon Charles Simeon was a famous preacher from the 1800s uh, and he was talking uh, during the Industrial Revolution, um, and I sort of summarise. But he said, he said, when I hear about the doctrine of election, he says I rejoice. God has chosen me, and I am secure in Him. And then I hear how the apostles exhort me to obedience. I delight in that freedom of choice and action that God has given me. And he says these two truths of election and freedom are like two cogs in a complicated machine. And they might be moving in opposite directions, and yet they're serving a common purpose as they drive the engine forward. They are apparently opposite, but somehow reconcilable as they serve God's purposes in accomplishing man's salvation. I found that really helpful. These two ideas of we are chosen, God is completely in control, and we have freedom as well. Two cogs in opposite directions, but working for our salvation. And just a final thought as an aside really, because uh, if all this is doing your head in and you think, oh, I don't follow this at all, I'm always reassured by that wonderful scene at the end of John's gospel. Do you remember Peter is badgering Jesus about what's going to happen in the future? They're walking along the seashore. And he says, I want to know what's going to happen in the future. I want to know what's going to happen to John. I want to know I want to know this stuff. And Jesus turns to him and says, just stop fussing about that, Peter. Just leave that alone. He said, what you need to focus on is just following me. And if we find some of these ideas distracting or we start worrying about them, I think we take the words of Jesus there, don't we? Simply focus on Jesus. So God chooses, he has mercy on who he wants, but he's a God of love, but he shows his wrath. That we can celebrate that when we know Jesus, we are his chosen people.